Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to award-winning Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I'm your host, Rick Loiza, and this is a podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. We bring old-school basketball to a new-school audience. And today we bring you the conclusion of our profile on the Big O, Oscar Robertson. In part one, we talked about Oscar's upbringing and his life up to the end of his high school career, where he led Crispus Attucks High School to back-to-back Indiana State titles. Oscar was considered the best high school player in the country and was in great demand by universities all over the country. In part two, we covered the college career at the University of Cincinnati. He led his team to the NCAA Final Four in his last two years there. Unfortunately, Cincinnati got knocked out by the University of California both times, as California coach Pete Newell devised a defense especially to stop Oscar, and it worked both times. But before he joined the NBA, Oscar co-captained the 1960 U.S. Olympic team. The other captain was his brand new friend, Jerry West, from the University of West Virginia. Together, they led the team in dominant fashion and easily took home the gold medal. Now, it was time for Oscar to join the NBA and see what he could do against the greatest players in the world. The lead up to the 1960 NBA draft was very anticlimactic. Oscar already knew that he would go to the local team, the Cincinnati Royals. Back then, the NBA had something called the territorial pick, and I have mentioned this before. It meant that at the NBA draft, a team could forego their normal first-round pick in order to just grab a college player that played within 75 miles of the team's arena. The thinking was that ensuring college players to play for their local NBA teams would increase attendance for the NBA team as there was already a built-in fan base. In effect, what it meant that every NBA team had a complete loss on any college star from their same area. Any college star coming from a New York area school would end up on the Knicks. A college star from the Philadelphia area would automatically end up on the Warriors. I think you see where I'm going with this. Well, in 1960, the Cincinnati Royals had dibs on Oscar, and they had already made it publicly known that they would take Oscar with their territorial pick. Oscar knew that he would not even have to leave the city of Cincinnati, but he would have to move out of the dorms, of course. With this new NBA money and some endorsement money, he was able to purchase a very nice home in an upper middle class neighborhood of Cincinnati. He was newly married and this was a great place for Oscar and his wife Yvonne to raise a family. Having grown up in poverty, this was new to Oscar, but he enjoyed his wealth. And in saying that, I do not mean that he was wasteful or splashy. He had a business degree from the University of Cincinnati. He made the Dean's List several times, meaning that he was an exceptional student. He understood that this was his opportunity 
opportunity to change his family's future. He had already begun investing his money very wisely even while still in college. He was able to use his knowledge of business and contracts along with some other good advice from a lawyer friend and he negotiated a very rare guaranteed contract from the Royals including a no trade clause, the first such clause in NBA history. The Royals could not trade Oscar without his consent. It was probably the best contract that any NBA player had ever signed up to that point. Now it was time to join the team and start playing some games. Now back then NBA teams would play as many preseason games as possible and they did so for one simple reason. Preseason games were all profit for the owners. The players did not get paid for preseason games only regular season games. Essentially, they played preseason for free, which is why some teams scheduled as many as 20 preseason games. It was all profit with very little overhead for the team owners. Of course, that is not the case anymore. Today, players get paid just for being part of training camp, even if they do not make the team. They get paid for every day that they are in camp, and then they get paid for every preseason game played where they are still on the roster. Things have changed considerably since Oscar's rookie year, and Oscar had a lot to do with that, which I will get into later in this episode. Now, when Oscar came in as a rookie, he averaged 30 points, 10 rebounds, and 9.7 assists per game as a rookie. He nearly averaged a triple-double as a brand new player, and of course, he made the All-Star game. In fact, he made the All-Star game every year of his career except his final two seasons when his play began to drop. You rarely see a rookie come into NBA with those kinds of numbers. He was a dominant player from the get-go. Now, normally, it takes most rookies a bit of time to adjust to the NBA. Some need more time than others, but for Oscar, he needed no time at all. The team had some talent as well. Among his teammates were Wayne Embry, Bob Boozer, and Jack Twyman. These were all really solid players, including a couple of other All-Stars. But the Royals finished that season with a 33-46 and record. Not enough to really get anything done. Over the next few years, the Royals did pretty well. After Oscar's rookie year, the Royals went to the playoffs for six years in a row. Unfortunately, those were the same years that the Boston Celtics were snatching everybody's lunch. In his second year in the league, he did something that up until only eight years ago had never been done by anybody else. He averaged a triple-double for an entire season. For 50 years, he had been the only player in history to do that. That is why he was considered by some to be the best all-around player in NBA history before some guy named Michael Jordan came along, of course. Oscar could do everything. Oscar continued to impress, but the team continued to get knocked out of the playoffs. But in just his fourth season in the NBA, he took home the league MVP award as the best player in the NBA, and he deserved that honor. But it just could not translate to playoff success. It seemed that they were always missing just one piece of the puzzle. They could not keep up with the Celtics, who were the more complete team. And Oscar had a very interesting relationship with the Celtics. Bob Cousy was very cold toward Oscar, and maybe it was because Cousy had been considered the best point guard in the league for years, and now came a younger, faster, stronger, more athletic, and bigger point guard to challenge him. At the same time, Oscar became friends with Bill Russell. When the Celtics came to Cincinnati, Russell would have an early dinner at the Robertson home. Yvonne Robertson always went all out when Bill Russell was coming over for dinner. They would have excellent, deep, and thought-provoking conversations about philosophy, politics, the state of the civil rights movement, 
movement and what it meant to be black and wealthy in America. And then Oscar and Russell would drive to the arena together for another hard-fought basketball game. And by the way, Oscar also helped the Royals at the box office. When Oscar joined the Royals, their attendance tripled just because of him. He was definitely proving his worth in his contract. Now, this is a good place to take a break, and I'll be right back with the second half of Oscar's NBA career and the creation of the Players' Union. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One Gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of unique Unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t-shirts, long-sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com, R-O-W number one, for access to the full Row 1 catalog and for gallery prints and gift items, plus get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row 1 Pictorum Gallery with coupon code SHN15. Follow the link on the show notes. Hi, everybody. Dan and Andrew from Hello Old Sports here. We wanted to drop in and let you know about our latest episode. That's right. We interviewed the co-authors of Phyllis George, Shattering the Ceiling, a biography of groundbreaking broadcaster Phyllis George. And her life is really sort of a journey through 20th century America, from Miss America pageants to the Kentucky State House to the groundbreaking NFL Today show on CBS, even the Kentucky Colonels, the old ABA. We got into all sorts of stories about the Celtics under Red Auerbach, about the interview with Roger Staubach, about really all sorts of things, a fight between Brent Musburger and Jimmy the Greek. We really enjoyed talking with Lenny Shulman and Paul Volponi, who teamed up to write this book. The book is on sale right now wherever books are sold, you know, within reason, garage sales, probably not. So go (laughs) ahead and pick up a copy today. And if you want a chance to win the book, you can go to sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways and register for a chance to win. Goodbye, old sports. Before we continue with the story of Oscar Robertson, I want to share an opportunity for all listeners. Here at the Sports History Network, we are a group of 30 sports history podcasts. We have shows on football, baseball, boxing, hockey, you name it. I love American football and the NFL. Football is a sport that I played in high school, so I am very excited to share this with you. We have a fantasy football league for you to join. Even though the NFL season has started, you can still sign up. We have partnered with tailgate fantasy sports to offer this to you tailgate fantasy offers you a new way to play fantasy football by helping you put the word fan back into fantasy football just go to sportshistorynetwork.com slash tailgate that's sportshistorynetwork.com slash tailgate Welcome back to the show, and let us continue with our profile on Oscar Robertson. As I mentioned before the break, 
Oscar's NBA career could not have gone better from an individual perspective. He was averaging just short of a triple-double every single season. He was making all-star games and producing sellout crowds everywhere he went, but it seems that he could not get the Royals over the top to that championship that the organization really wanted. I mean, Oscar wanted it too, I don't want to pretend that he didn't. Now, while his career was going, he was in a conversation with some of the other leading players from around the league and they began to have conversations about trying to create a players union. Oscar and the other leading players felt that the NBA was starting to gain more solid financial footing and that they needed to provide some basic things like full-time trainers for every team, medical insurance, and a certain level of accommodations while on the road. One simple example is that the players wanted the NBA to eliminate the situation where a team had to play on a Saturday night in one city and then play again on Sunday afternoon in a different city. Because some teams had to take a train or a bus to get from one city to another, and this situation resulted in players getting very little to no sleep between games. I mean, imagine playing on a Saturday night and then having to stay up all night while you travel to the next city on a bus or a train and then having to play again without having gone to sleep. This is what NBA players in the 1950s and 1960s had to deal with almost every weekend. There were a bunch of other little things like this that led to the creation of the Players Union. And I go into a lot more detail on that story in episode 85 when the All-Star players threatened to boycott the 1964 All-Star game unless the owners legally recognized the Players Union. Things then began to change for the players in collective bargaining, and Oscar had a huge role in making that happen. Oscar was named the first president of the new Players Union. Oscar spent a good chunk of his summer doing administrative work on behalf of the union. He was setting agendas, contacting each of the team's player reps for discussions, as well as preparing for negotiations with the owners. It was like having a second job. And one of the positive things that they saw was an overall increase in player salaries as the league as a whole started to make more money. And then came a brand new league called the ABA, and they began to bid for players from the NBA and college. With two leagues competing for the services of these same players, Players, salaries started to rise dramatically in both leagues. But then the ABA and the NBA proposed a merger, which could have meant that the salaries would drop because of the lack of competition. So Oscar put his name as the lead plaintiff to sue the NBA for free agency. You see, up until then, once a team had a player's rights, they had those rights forever, even after the contract ran out. So a player could play out a five-year contract, and when the contract ended, he could not just go and sign with another team. He either had to sign with that same team again or quit basketball altogether. The only way that a player changed teams was when the team traded that player. There was no other way for players to move. The players union figured that this had to be illegal in some way. A team could not just hold a player's rights forever, so they filed the lawsuit. And I tell a more complete version of that story in episode 117. So to make a long story short, the NBA settled out of court and allowed free agency. Uh, this now meant that when a player's contract ended, he could go anywhere he wanted. It was great for the player, but the settlement took several years and did not go into effect until after Oscar had already retired from the NBA. So let me back up a bit to when he was still a player. In 1970, the new owners of the Royals decided that if they were ever going to win a championship, they needed to trade away an aging Oscar for some new young talent. So it was announced in the newspapers that the Cincinnati Royals had traded Oscar Robertson to the Baltimore Bullets. Unfortunately, what the new owners of the Royals did not realize is that Oscar had a no-trade clause in his contract. 
They could not trade Oscar without Oscar's consent, and the owners were reminded of that during a meeting with Oscar and his lawyer. The owners looked foolish. They had already announced the trade to the press. Now they were at Oscar's mercy. The Royals were informed that Oscar was already in contact with other teams in the NBA to negotiate a reasonable trade and then come back to the Royals for them to make it official. Oscar targeted the Milwaukee Bucks. They were a brand new team in the league having only played two seasons. But they had a guy named Lou Alcindor who was just named Rookie of the Year and would eventually change his name to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And Oscar wanted to play there. And the Royals made it happen and Oscar became a Milwaukee Buck. In Oscar's very first season in Milwaukee, they won the NBA championship. He finally got the thing that he had been working on for his entire career, and now he had it. In total, he played four seasons for Milwaukee, but those last two years were a bit underwhelming. He was getting older, and little injuries started to pile up. At the end of the 1974 season, he talked with the Bucks about coming back for one more year, and the Bucks declined the offer, and Oscar was done with his playing career. At the time that he retired, he was the number one player all-time in career assists, and he was number two in all-time scoring. That is how much he dominated his era. After his retirement, he moved his family back to Cincinnati, which really had become his home by then. He still lives there today. He raised his three daughters and started a number of successful businesses. He was one of those early NBA stars who then became a successful entrepreneur. He changed the future of his family's life just as he had wanted to since he was a kid. And it all started with that worn out used basketball that his mother had given him as a Christmas present when he was just a kid. The ball and the local playground court launched Oscar into a completely different life. He traveled the world because of basketball and got to do things that he never would have dreamed of while sitting on his great grandfather's porch back in Tennessee. This was a great grandfather who was once a slave. Who could have known back then that little Oscar would become famous, wealthy, featured on magazine covers, and represent the United States at the Olympics in Rome, Italy. It was absolutely incredible how his life transformed from the beginning to the end. And even today, if you ask Oscar who is the greatest player in league history, he will say that it's him. <laughs> and when you take a really close look at his career and accomplishment, it is difficult to argue against the man himself. Well, that is it for today. That concludes our profile on Oscar Robertson, and join us next time when we share the story of when Dolph Shays, one of the very early superstars of the NBA, surprised the 1980s Boston Celtics. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcast, and check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There, you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories in the past. Take care and see you soon.